several miles off the main highway, tucked away in a secluded canyon on prime vineyard property, stands a rustic barn that was built many decades before the vines around it were planted. In that barn, a sophisticated broadcast and recording studio has been built. The barn also has a well-hidden root cellar stocked with many of the world's most exceptional wines, only to be shared with guests who secretly come to offer their insights and tell their stories. Guests are sworn to secrecy and are shuttled to the studio aboard a John Deere tractor. Those who cannot make the journey in person are interviewed by satellite hookup, and sometimes the crew simply sneaks away with microphones in hand and interviews guests in barrel rooms, wine cellars, and other magical places. All of this is done like clockwork every single week so that we can bring you another episode of Grape Encounters Radio. Peel me a grape Crush me some ice Skin me a peach Save the fuzz for my pillow And it is time for your Grape Encounter of the Week. And you know what? Every year at this time, we like to talk about a subject in the wine business called sustainability. I'm going to tell you what, this was a subject that not too many people talked about just even 10 years ago, but now it is something that we talk about practically every day if you're around the wine business. It is the idea of wineries and vineyards being as close to 100% sustainable as they possibly can be. If you're not sure what that means, I've got a guest on today that is going to help us to understand that. It really means a lot to all of us, I think. I am so pleased to have on Rick Marson. This is the longest title, by the way, gang, I've ever heard on a card. He is the Quality Assurance and Continuous Improvement Manager at Corbell. And yes, we're talking about Corbell, the people who make the bubbly. We're also going to get into the subject of champagne versus bubbly. We got so much to talk about on this week's Grape Encounters. And Rick, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Dave. So welcome f- to be here. Well, so, Okay, so first of all, let's start with what I was just talking about, bubbly versus champagne. You guys get to call it champagne, right? And I know that you use some different terms over at Corbell, but I think uh, the first thing we can say is Corbell is kind of grandfathered in. Is that correct? That's correct. I mean, we've been producing California champagne for over 135 years, so... You know, inherent in our nature and, and what we do and how we've called ourselves. When, when was it that people were, um, well, the kibosh was put on uh, calling uh, sparkling wine champagne? It, it, it hasn't been all that long ago, right? But um, there was a point where it was pretty much stopped, but there were companies that were allowed to continue to call it champagne, and uh, you were one of them, right? Yeah, it all goes back to treaties and, and international trade. And we, we came, like I said, we've been doing it for a long time. And within those treaties, that was grandfathered in so that we can continue to keep our name and our presence out in the marketplace like we always have had. But, but I think you, you use some modifiers, don't you, in the description of what you make, like California champagne, things like that, so you don't just say champagne. Yeah, we always have to have it qualified by a California appellation and or if it's Russian River, then we'll do Russian River or Sonoma County to say it's from this region, and that's how we make our champagne. Right, but that's a, that, that's a pretty valuable 
um, thing that you guys have, the ability to be able to use the word champagne because some people just absolutely can't use it. And But you earned it. You earned your stripes. You know, for, it took a long time, but yeah, we did. Yeah, for goodness sakes. In the grand scheme of things, Corbell, can you just kind of give us a little uh, insight into just how big the company is? Because I know you make a, a ton of champagne. We're talking about millions of bottles. You know, what is your annual production and where does that rank in terms of the rest of the country and, and really the rest of the world? Can you give me some insight into that? Well, because we're making it method champenoise, which means we make it with the uh, bottle. I mean, we ferment in the bottle. Right. And then we disgorge the yeast out of it. So it always, the, the, sh- the wine stays in the bottle all the way through the process, unlike some other processes where it might be in ink and, and then move to the bottle at a later stage. And, um, and, and that's all, all hand done, right? Well, yeah, we, we move it from one stage to the next using bottling line equipment. But yeah, it's a lot of manual movement through the process. Our, within our, um, in, in our movement of that yeast down in the neck of the neck of the bottle, you know, we've modified that over the years, but it, originally it was all hand done, yeah. Wow. And then in terms of quantity, is do you have a sense of how, how many bottles you guys produce or cases perhaps? Oh, we're probably close to 15 million bottles or 1.5 million cases. 15, 15 million bottles of champagne. To, yeah, you start to count the bottles. Now it's it, really big. Well, it's really funny because in other countries, they count bottles. Here in, in America, we count cases, I think. But yeah. if you go to other countries, they count bottles. It's an interesting thing. And then I don't know how many of those are sold at times like New Year's Eve, but it's a whole bunch, right? We sell probably 60% of it between October and December. Is that so, right? Yeah, it's, it's that whole holiday season. It really picks up a large part of it. Although we're starting to see more movement of just everyday consumption as a part of the meal. Well, I would think that you're really benefiting from the notion that we're reading more and more wine writers saying, don't just simply drink bubbly, you know, as a, a, a beverage for celebration, but drink it through the whole meal, that it works really well through the whole meal. And, and also, frankly, bubbly pairs really well with so many things, you know, so the attitudes seem to be changing where sparkling wines are concerned. That's got to be having a huge impact on your business, I would think. Oh, yeah. I mean, people are understanding that the champagne or the sparkling wines uh, go well with you know, a lot of different things, and it does have an impact on what doing to celebrate life. Yeah, because people, they would have that, they pull the champagne out either before the meal or at the end of a meal, but not during the meal. And now I hear more and more and more people who make sparkling wines and champagne saying, no, drink it during the meal. It works really well during the meal and discovered the very same thing to be true. It's really, really food friendly. But we've only, I think, recently discovered or at least come to understand that that is something that, yeah, we can do and not feel guilty about. Plus, bubbly isn't really as terribly expensive as it is in other places, you know, here in in California and the rest of the U.S. So anyway, but that's not what we're here to talk about. (laughs) We're here to talk about sustainability. And this is such a a big topic. And it's really been on my mind, especially this year, because we have been seeing, you know, and I'm not trying to turn this show into a political show. Believe me, I'm not. But we have, you know, seen some attention being taken off of environmental issues in the political world. Yet more than ever before, the wine industry is really digging their heels in to make sure that there's an immense amount of focus on sustainability. And if you could help explain with me what sustainability means to the wine industry and really what it means to the consumer, 
We'll start there. Well, like if we go back to my title, it continuous improvement. That's really what sustainability is to me. And taking what we already do and do well and continually make it better so that, you know, we use maybe less power, less water and create less waste. And in the end, that that's how sustainability should be looked because if we're doing that, then we're doing it right. So what is the perfect scenario? Do we want to get to the point where a winery is 100% sustainable? And, and when we say sustainable, does that not mean in not having any inputs go into the winery from the outside? In other words, everything that we're doing is essentially self-sufficient? Uh, that would be nice. That'd I, be mean, nice. I know, okay. There's a lot of things that, you know, it's just more difficult to do than that. I mean, we, we if you look at our, our waste streams and, and what we try to do to pare that down, we, we don't necessarily want to say we're not going to have any waste, but where we, when we do have waste, we want to make sure we properly process it so that it gets moved into the right recycle process and, and can be reused downstream or reworked. And and the same thing goes for, you know, our inline processes and, and how we buy equipment, how we use water to manage our winery system, as well as our vineyard. You know, we want to run our systems so that they um, create value. What's sort of interesting to me, I, I was watching a documentary that was talking about how in many countries where wine production is concerned that, you know, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm hesitating to use this term, but I think it's correct that most countries don't actually irrigate. And, you know, here in the States, we irrigate. And the truth is, is that, and a lot of people don't realize this, that wines that have a little stress put on them, grapes that have a little stress put on them, actually produce better wines. Are we moving solidly in that direction? Uh, is that one of the things that we're seeing, a, you know, a big change in? I mean, especially when you talk about California, a state that has suffered from four to five years of really intense drought now coming out of it this year. Um, you know, where do we stand with that? The wine industry overall has done great, especially in Sonoma County area, do a lot of drip irrigation and conserve that water in the vineyards. Um, but there is some water that's needed, especially as the wines are developing very young and, and as they grow. Uh, but long term, if you can build a great root system and go to depths down into the water that's in the soil, you're going to get better fruit, more concentrated flavors, and uh, better wine quality. All right, hold that thought for a second, if you wouldn't mind, Rick, because there was something else in that documentary that really struck me as interesting. I wanted to know if you have any information on this particular subject. We're talking to Rick Marsan. He is the Corbell Quality Assurance and Continuous Improvement Manager. Of course you know Cor- Corbell. Corbell is America's champagne, or I could say sparkling wine champagne. What do we want to call it? What's the right term, Rick? Uh, for our company, it's California champagne. All right. Of our product, that's, a, that's what it is. It is uh, Corbell's California champagne. It is delicious. You know this product. You've had it. I can't think of anybody in America that probably hasn't had it. And uh, we are going to talk more about sustainability. It is Down to Earth Month in California, and Corbell is a very big player in the California market. We'll return with Grape Encounters right after this. This segment of Grape Encounters is brought to you by my number one wine discovery of 2016, the awesome gold medal winning wines of the Cardello Winery. From the very first sip, you'll understand why these astounding, nicely priced Cardello wines are swiftly becoming a cult classic, just as I predicted. Handcrafted and stunning, you can get yours at CardelloWinery.com. That's CardelloWinery.com. Or find more information at GrapeEncounters.com. 
Wine is certainly not the key to happiness, but if you'll give us the key to your wine cellar, we'll spend a few hours double-checking that hypothesis. In the meantime, your grape encounter with David Wilson and his very happy-go-lucky friends continues. Here comes the sun, do-do-do-do. Here comes the sun, I say, it's all right. Mm. All right, we're back with Grape Encounters Radio. What a pleasure to have on the line the quality assurance and continuous improvement manager. That doesn't fit on one line. But anyway, it's the quality assurance and continuous improvement manager from Corbell, the amazing, amazing California champagne makers. It's Rick Marson. And Rick, we were talking a minute ago about what's being done to eliminate the need for so much water in irrigation. I was watching, as I said, this interesting documentary just the other night, and they were talking about the idea that if you drill down really deeply before you plant the grapevines and get the roots to go straight down as opposed to going out laterally, that you can actually uh, train them to not drink so much water. Is that the kind of thing that you guys work on over at Corbell? What are the different kinds of initiatives that you put into practice that make the winery more sustainable? We have a couple different vineyard practices that we do. I mean, I'm more on the winery side, but in one vineyard, we have tiled the base of the vineyard so as we do irrigate we can capture that and it goes back into the ponds we also capture the rainwater off of that same vineyard that goes back into the pond and then we can recycle it through the system when you say ponds you know just explain how that whole setup works because you know obviously you're storing some water on the property mm-hmm. and, and when you say tiling the base of it does that mean literally having tiles so that it doesn't soak into the ground and is more easily captured yeah and that's exactly what we're trying to do is capture the water, you know, whether it be rainwater or drip water, and pull it back through the system so that we can continually recycle that. Uh, of course, this is deep down underneath the soil so that the vine can support itself. Tell me about this last season here. This, well, really, the season that we're in, it's been a very rainy season up your direction, you know, more so than, I guess, what, the last five years? Would that be uh, right? Yeah, it's been wet. Yeah, everything's pretty green up there right now. That's right. Yeah, but that doesn't happen too often. Has there been a lot going on in California, in the Napa and Sonoma areas to try to prevent the dangers of a drought like the one we've just experienced? Yeah, I think a lot of it is just what we're talking about with agriculture and trying to go for more drip irrigation or more dry land farming and reduce that water use overall. But then even in the operations, looking at how water is used to clean and sanitize and make sure that the best methods that are available are being used to make sure that happens as well. Do you have a sense of just how much progress has been made? Actually, I should phrase it this way. Have the last five years put sustainability into high gear? In other words, has that really forced winemakers to take measures that they might not have otherwise taken were it not for the fact that, you know, if we don't do something about this, we're going to have a really big problem on our hands? I would believe so overall, you know, if the grapes are starved or they're in drought mode, then that affects the fruit. You want to make sure whatever you're putting out onto the vineyards is what you want it to. What was your background originally, Rick? You've been in the wine business for a long time. You told me off mic you've been with Corbell for what, is it 35 years? Uh, yes, I have. Holy I, smoke. That's I a graduated good... from UC Davis in the fermentation program and then uh, came to work here. Well, first starting out, I was working in the cellar, cleaning tanks and 
work through the sanitation program all the way up to being lab manager, quality manager, and corporate quality manager, and now uh, quality assurance and continuous improvement manager. I want to just check in on the subject of sanitation for a second, because this is something that I find very, very interesting. We in the U.S. and California in particular are, I think, a lot more obsessed with sanitation, are we not, than our old world brothers. You know, when you taste wines from other countries, you will taste that sort of mustiness that I think has a lot to do with sanitation practices. Not that it's a bad thing, by the way, but I think we are a bit more in the way of clean freaks here in California and beyond. How does that play out in terms of the difference between our wines and wines that might be made someplace else? Good question. You know, I mean, I think there's a a lot of yeast and bacteria that are the normal flora and fauna within the winery. And you want to concentrate those microorganisms into a position so they're working for you and not against you. And that's what sanitation does for you is you're able to move the needle, so to speak, because you have done proper procedures to make sure your uh, tanks and your lines and everything don't have other things growing in it that you don't want it to have. And, uh, you know, I'm guessing that we have a lot less wine that goes down the drain when we practice better sanitation. I mean, I know wine is a very, very fragile product. It can go south pretty easily. It doesn't happen too much, I think, these days. No, I mean, when you control what comes in off the vineyard because there's the microorganisms surrounding us, you know, you want to make sure that what comes in is what you want to have and what you have, what you inoculate in the winery, going to give you the end results that you want to have on the wine itself. So, you know, we work really hard with the sanitation and then just managing the the cultures we have to make sure that they're consistent and good fruit value for our wine. We are talking to Rick Marson. He is the Quality Assurance and Continuous Improvement Manager. Let's dive into that second part of your title, Continuous Improvement Manager. How much room for improvement is there and what do you look at down the road in terms of, you know, new initiatives to just do a better job at what you're doing? Oh, that's a big question. Well, it's on your card. <laughs> I know. But, you know, within the vineyards and winery, I mean, there's a lot of people that operate within this organization that look at that on a minute level. You know, what I'm trying to do is just kind of keep the ballroom moving and make sure when we do have different things that we look at them and say, you know, if we're buying a new pump or motor or machine, you know, is it the most energy star efficient equipment we can get? Or is it something, if we're doing a, a cleaning process, can we look at that in terms of how the water is being used and can we use different things to achieve the same thing? I am guessing a lot of water gets used in the process of making wine. I don't have time to ask that question right now. We're going to take a little break, Rick, and we'll come back for one more bit of conversation talking to Rick Marson, who is the Quality Assurance and Continuous Improvement Manager at Corbell, also known as the QACIM at Corbell. That's it. <laughs> That's it. The Q- Q-A-C-I-M. I wonder what that spells. Anyway, we'll be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. Hang on. At Grape Encounters, we're all about sharing. That's why it would be a crying shame if you didn't join our Facebook group page. Just search for Grape Encounters Radio on Facebook. It's where we're constantly sharing the latest wine news and information while you're waiting for your next episode of Grape Encounters. 
David will be right back as soon as he's through unfriending anyone who doesn't love wine. Oh, I guess it's going to be a very short break. Welcome back to Grape Encounters, where we like to think of every wine country as home. However, our studios are located in the very friendly town of Atascadero, California, where fine wine can be found in every direction, which means you never really need directions to get anywhere you really want to go. back with Grape Encounters Radio, and if you're not in California and you ever get the chance to go out to Corbell, they are the folks who make that beautiful California champagne. you got to do that. Go take that tour. It's an amazing operation and making a tremendous amount of the bubbly stuff, and I have on the line with me Rick Marson, who is the Continuous Improvement Manager. Rick, I've just shortened your title. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> We're always trying to, that's me. I'm always trying to improve my Myself. I'm not succeeding, <laughs> but, but I guess if I was working for Corbell, I'd, I'd dedicate my life to making things better and better. We were talking at the end of our last segment about water, and boy, I'll tell you what, the water in the wine industry is not just used to water the grapes. There's a lot of water that is used in the winemaking process, isn't there? There, there definitely is. Cleaning tanks, uh, cleaning bottles. We, we, in our process, we have uh, to make sure that when as we score the yeast out of the bottle, we have the opportunity to clean all that off so before we put our final packaging on, we have a nice clean bottle. So explain to those who are not familiar with the champagne making process, you know, in terms of disgorging the yeast, you know, from the time that goes into the bottle to the time that it comes out, you know, just exactly what that entails and, and you know, also what the water usage is and why sustainable practices are so important here. Well, the process of making champagne is... We take a still wine and we add sugar and yeast into a bottle and put a cap on it and allow that yeast to ferment inside that bottle. But it's cap- capturing that the gases that are evolved off of that fermentation, and that's where the bubbles come from. Well, now that we've got the yeast inside the bottle, we want to get it out so you have a nice, clean, clear bottle of California champagne afterwards. So we turn them upside down and allow that yeast to settle down into the neck of the bottle. And from there, we freeze the neck and uh, down to minus degrees. And then from there, we can turn it right side up and then disgorge, which is the removal of the cap and that sediment plug that's captured in the ice plug. And yeah, you know, I've always been curious about this, and I've never asked this question, but it, it, does it take a special kind of bottle? I know you're making those bottles ultra. Is there something special about the glass in those in champagne bottles that causes them not to shatter, or is it just the same glass that we use for any other wine bottle? Well, it's the same glass, but it's the process is the same. We, I mean, along our lines, 
companies that are making our champagne bottles, they're running other bottles, but it's the weight of those bottles. I mean, a typical wine bottle may be 16 ounces to 20 ounces, depending on the wine you're making. Right. But the champagne bottle, we're up to 30 ounces, so it's almost double. And that glass is distributed throughout the bottle, so that gives it strength. Yeah. All right. So let's get political for a second here. And I, you know, and I really don't, I'm not taking any sides here. I'm making a point not to do that, but there have been a lot of changes just in the past couple of months with the new administration coming in in Washington. A lot of attention is kind of being focused away from conservation and things like sustainability, which, you know, and it gets really, really interesting because the president's family also has a winery and we won't get into that. But now it's really the, you know, rather than being something that I'm treading lightly here, by the way, you can feel it in my voice. I'm treading lightly, but, you know, conservation appears to be, is being put more in the hands of the person who is producing things than ever before. And sustainability is certainly something that is voluntary in nature. Do you think with the conditions being as they are that the wineries will continue to, you know, push hard in this direction? Is the impetus for them to enact all of the, you know, sustainability practices coming from within as opposed to coming from the outside? I think that it's, yeah, coming from within, it's building good habits and making sure that we're doing what's right for the winery and processes. I mean, being told what to do is not necessarily going to gain us the best process. And we have to work through the processes and understand that it's right for the facility or the vineyard um, before we make that move. But ultimately, we're looking for what's going to be best for the vine or best for the, the process itself, give us, or the winery and the wine, the ultimate change. So you've been in the industry for a really long time. I, I w- was thinking back to just, you know, maybe even 15 years ago when I would try to purchase organic wine. I don't like the term organic very much, but when I would purchase wines that were 100% organic, which is a term that, you know, doesn't necessarily mean a lot. And those wines were typically, you know, at one point pretty terrible. I mean, just terrible. And now the wines that are being made at places like yours where there are all of these environmentally conscientious practices in place are actually better than the than the wines that are made where those practices are not in place. What happened? Was there a defining moment when all of a sudden the light went on and we went, wow, these wines are, you know, we can actually make wines in a more environmentally conscientious way and they're actually better? Thoughts? Yeah, you know, I mean, a lot of it comes back from the grape. And we do produce and or made with organic grown grapes product. And, you know, and a lot of those practices that are used to make that are being incorporated into our system so that, you know, it just becomes good habits all the way around. We don't want to have one system make our organic product and have to change it everything else. So we just adapt those good practices. And I realize there is a difference between organic and sustainable. They're not the same thing. Mm-hmm. But all the same, what we're seeing is, you know, definitely wineries are operating in a much more organic fashion and at the same time very focused on sustainability all the way around no matter you know which direction you look the practices are better for your health better for the wines better for the environment and uh, you know oddly enough we're making way better wines you know is it what do you think is at the heart of that well i think with anything it takes a lot of time to develop process and procedures to make it you know something that comes the palatable wine that we see today 
and that that just takes time to develop through continuous improvement. And there was probably a lot of failures that came before what we have today to get the better wines that we have, and that's what happened over time. I remember, you know, one of the things that I noticed the most was when we really, you know, first getting into organic wines, they were, you know, underripe. That was one thing that I noticed for sure, you know, that they weren't, you know, the grapes weren't ripening properly and, you know, the fruit was just not as lush and unctuous as it is today. But it just seems like we've got this so dialed in right now. Has it been exciting at a business as big as uh, Corbell that makes so much wine, the sustainable practices, what does that translate into in terms of uh, economics at an organization as big as yours? You know, I think it's small overall at this point in the game because we've just began the, began the process of, you know, writing it all down and keeping track of things. But as we build more numbers and look at, you know, our utility bills and look at our water usage, we're going to see it. We've been tracking since 2007 all of those numbers. So we do see, just, you know, it's small incremental trends that we start to see it dropping slowly. Yeah. And I think as people manage the data and understand it better, they see where it's improved their process. And, and in the end, saved the money. Awesome. All right. Well, listen, I really appreciate you being uh, on, Rick. I do want to point this out that it is uh, Down to Earth Month in California. There is all kinds of stuff going on as they celebrate Down to Earth Month in California. April is a big, 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 big month. If you want to come out to California or if you live in California, for that matter, so many wineries are doing really, really cool stuff to celebrate the, the whole idea of sustainability. The place that you can go is discovercaliforniawines.com. Again, it's uh, discovercaliforniawines, plural, .com. There are just lots and lots of wineries that are doing stuff, so you couldn't pick a better month to really get out here and have some fun. And, you know, this is just the beginning of the month, and the fun is just beginning. And for us, we started the fun with Rick Marson. And, Rick, thanks for being on. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, really nice. I'm going to be up in your neck of the woods this weekend, so don't be surprised. Surprised if I if you hear a knock on the door and you see a slightly chubby little fellow with a flute that's empty in his hands, <laughs> just well, staring well, at yeah. you. Okay, you'll Very good. you'll know what to do, right? Oh, absolutely. Okay, all right. Hey, we're gonna be back in just a second. Joining us next is Sarah Schneider, wine editor from Sunset Magazine, and we will have sipping with Sarah right after this. At Grape Encounters, we're all about sharing. That's why it would be a crying shame if you didn't join our Facebook group page. Just search for Grape Encounters Radio on Facebook. It's where we're constantly sharing the latest wine news and information while you're waiting for your next episode of Grape Encounters. Did you know that you can visit us in person? right in the heart of the Central Coast wine country of California. We can get you a special rate at one of our loveliest hotels, introduce you to some epic wines in person, help you chart out amazing self-guided winery tours, and tell you stories that we're not allowed to share on the radio. Okay, that last one was a stretch. Earthy, honest, and sipping each week as a service to you. From Sunset Magazine, it's Sarah Schneider, and this is Sipping with Sarah on Grape Encounters Radio. 
Grape Encounters Radio, and now joining us, and she's looking fresh as a daisy, Sarah Schneider has had her pampering, and now it's time to do a little bit of work, if you can call this work, Sarah. You because, make it sound like a hard day. You know, really. all of your handlers and your dressers and all <laughs> of that. Only. Yeah, if only. That didn't really happen. Keep that myth going. Although her helicopter, <laughs> when it lands, people get excited about that. Anyway, so Sarah, we're going to do a wine yet again today. This is not Stump the Sarah exactly. But you Have just you noticed that, that in the past weeks, I've not been doing that to you? Not as much. I've been trying you to be... to do that kind. to me, though. I used to do it a lot, but you humiliated me so many times by getting it right. <laughs> that I just don't do it. I've poured a wine into your glass. It's blind again. And when I say it's blind, this wine could be used as blinds because you, it would keep all the light out, wouldn't it? This is an amazingly dense wine. This is the... You mean that it's stupid? One of the darkest, deepest colored wine I think I've seen in a long time. Really? It is, isn't it? It's inky black. Boy, I'll tell you what. So here's what I can tell you about the wine. I pour this wine for people. They go bonkers for this wine. And I brought it in because I had wanted to talk about a particular varietal today. And it happens to be this wine. Okay. Okay. Is that varietal? And that's what we're going to be talking about today. But I thought, you know, how can we talk about a varietal if we're not drinking the varietal, right? We can't. That would be a sin. That would be like deceiving our public, right? Ah. Okay. So go ahead and give her your swirl, your signature Sarah Schneider swirl. And this swirl is staining the whole glass. Yeah, just don't get it on you because that baby's dark, which doesn't necessarily mean anything, mm, right? It doesn't mean anything. There's yeah. sort of a high-toned aromatic quality to the nose. Here. I think this wine is so well-suited to the American palate, for one thing. Mm-hmm. It's what Americans really like to drink. Not to say that it's a bad thing or a good thing. It's just the kinds of wines that we like, this would be right there. And the funny part about this wine is that it would be a shocker to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Does that take you anywhere or have I just confused you, you more? You confused me. I would, would you say so, the inkiness of this wine is at least visually when you drink it, it doesn't taste nearly as inky as you think it's going to be? No. And it threw me off. I mean, I would look at it and I'd say, oh, that's Petit Syrah. Exactly. Or, yeah. Um, Petit Verdot or something like not, that. Or even Syrah. Yeah. You know, you see Syrahs, Syrah some Grenaches that are, are deep like that. Yeah. Malbec for sure. Yeah. But it's none of those. The nose isn't anything like that, any of those varieties. Yeah. Um, so this is a wine that I think is off of most people's radar. And when I say most people, I mean most wine drinkers, people who really are into wine in more than a casual way. This is probably not necessarily on their radar, but for the general public, and when I say general public, I'm talking about people who just drink table wine, you know, not expensive wine. This one would definitely be on their radar. Would be on their radar. Would be on their radar. Isn't that a strange distinction? That is strange. Are you saying that this is a wine that usually goes into blends? No. No, it's usually on its own. I'm saying it's a very, very popular wine, but it's not so popular with people who drink fine wine. Now I'm really confused. Now you won't be when you realize what it is. You want to take any guesses? Well... It's not a shocker at all. This is an easy one. This is easy. I was headed down the path towards something that usually is a blender. Well, yes, this wine gets blended, but it's very popular as a single varietal. Are we talking Zinfandel? No, we're not. I mean, not without color. What is the most maligned wine out there right now? Merlot. It's Merlot. Wow. Yes. See, the color threw me way off. Yes, it's Merlot. And there's a lot of lessons about this particular wine as we kind of get into it. But let's first talk about Merlot for a second. Okay. Merlot makers got kicked in the teeth some years ago when the movie Sideways came out. Yep. Because a fictitious character told you what you should like and not like. (laughs) And it's really funny Mm -hmm. because it could have been any wine, but Miles, the main character in Merlot, 
Merlot, shouted out, I'm not drinking any blinking Merlot. And that was it for Merlot. That was Those it. were death words. And anybody that was not making good Merlot, they just tore their Merlot out. And they put Pinot in because Miles loved Pinot. And guess what? Pinot doesn't grow where Merlot grows, at least not well. And we saw the rise of Pinot and the fall of Merlot, which was a huge tragedy because Merlot is such a beautiful wine. Right. Boy, when you get your hands on a good Merlot, it's just amazing. Yeah. Now, this particular wine, I will tell you, sells like hotcakes. Really? It's just a fun wine to drink, just envelops you. Beyond those lush cherry flavors, which is, you know, Merlot marker, it also has a hint of, and this is something I really like about Merlot, a fresh herb quality along the edges Yeah. that I think make it a really interesting wine. So you know what I do with this wine when people say they don't like Merlot, I'll kind of take the conversation someplace else and then eventually I'll go grab a bottle of this and I'll pour a glass blind for them. I don't tell them what it is. I go, oh, by the way, try this. You'll, you'll really love this wine. And then they'll try it and they'll just go bananas for it. I go, wow, what is that? And then I'll do what I'm going to do for you. I take it out do of the, the reveal. I take <laughs> it out of the bag and I reveal it and there, there it is. Do you know what that is? I've never seen this, but it's a Napa Valley. Okay. It is a Napa Valley Merlot and it is from Amelo. And there's another great story that we have to tell you here because Amelo is a second label from the Wagner family. There, and the Wagner family makes the wines from Camus. And for those of you who are in places where you can't get a huge selection of wine, you probably are familiar with Camus Conundrum. Or right. It's not called Camus Conundrum anymore. They just call it Conundrum. For a long time, it was just the white. And then they came out with a red, this juicy, unctuous. It's like the cherry or strawberry sauce on the New York cheesecake. <laughs> you know, it's just they make these. This really, is a little bit like that, too. Well, that's what I'm saying. And mm -hmm. this wine, people just love this wine. And even if they're Merlot haters, or they think they are, the fact is, is that there's just gobs of really good Merlot out there right now. There really are. I guess, and it's reasonably yeah. priced, and it doesn't need to be, because frankly, Merlot, in my opinion, is just as good a grape as Cabernet. Made right, it's delicious. It's one of the noble ones. And wasn't that the joke at the end of that movie, Sideways? Yeah, go ahead and tell that. When Miles, our main character, who has been dissing Merlot for the entire trip that he's been on, at a very low point, is having a hamburger in the last scene and pulls out his very special bottle of Right Bank Bordeaux. And the joke's on him because it's primarily Merlot. Yeah. He doesn't know that. Funny stuff. So the other lesson in this, drink Merlot. You know, Merlot used to sell for around 5000 a ton, meaning, you know, think of your one ton pickup truck filled with grapes. It's come up a little bit now, but there was a time when it was selling for 1500 from 5000 to 1500 That's why the price fell so much in the wines. But Merlot is a really close relative to Cabernet. Right. It's just as good a grape, in my opinion, but it's now very inexpensive, and the Merlot out there is really good, so buy it. But the second thing is, look for second labels. Many, many wineries, like the Camus folks, they have second labels, and they make sense. these really delicious wines that are just a fraction of the price of their flagship wines. So it's always good to find out if there are other wines in the wine family. Really good point. Yeah. It's worth doing the research. All right. That's going to do it for Grape Encounters today. Thank you very much, Sarah Schneider. My pleasure. Boy, I'm going to finish up this glass. You yeah. like it? This we can't spit or pour. No, we can't spit or pour. All right. But we can spit poorly. <laughs> okay. Always do. We'll see you all back here next week. Your grape encounter isn't over. We're just taking a breather until next week's edition.